Like Chris said, we're in a series called Love Everybody and Always. Much of the difficulty in breaking through a barrier is psychological. Wouldn't you agree with that? The burden always lies with the first person who's kind of launching out in that new endeavor. There is a rock in California. It is called El Capitan in Yosemite, and it is 3,000 feet straight up. It took Warren Harding 47 climbing days over 17 months to ascend to the top. It always takes someone going first. Today, it can be done in four hours. There is another rock that oftentimes is unknown to people. It's called Golgotha. It is where Jesus was crucified. It is where Jesus drove home this message. That if you want to be as I am, you must live as I lived. And if you want to live as I lived, you must die as I died. And if you want to die as I died, you must rise again. God always calls us to new heights. And yet he was the one through his life that demonstrated for you and I that humility is the foundation for our relationships. We're in a series where we're taking a look at 1 Corinthians 13 at the eight different traits that Paul mentions about love. And we're gonna take a look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 this morning that says, love is not conceited or proud. If you truly wanna take your relationships to a new height, if you want to experience a breakthrough, then you must lay in the foundation of your relationship with that person, humility. Now this raises the question, what is humility? And I think I'll be better able to answer that question by first just saying this of what it's not. It is not shyness. It is not a lack of confidence. It is not insecurity. It is not a low opinion of yourself. It is not being a doormat. It is not having a poor self-esteem. It is not being a wimp. I think what you and I are going to find this morning is that it takes an enormous amount of courage to be humble. It takes an enormous amount of self-confidence and personal security. In fact, insecure people can't be humble. Because insecurity produces the exact opposite. It produces pride. When you find someone who is filled full of themselves, more than likely, they are masking deep insecurities in their life. Pride is almost always a cover-up for insecurities, and yet it can be seen, can it not, through boasting and bragging and exaggerating and worry. You might think, well, what kind of worry? Worrying about what other people think. It can be seen through being hypercritical and judgmental towards others. And so rather than pride being a matter of confidence, it's humility. Just the opposite that is a matter of confidence. And Jesus led the way. He was the breakthrough person for us. He was confident so much that he was willing to scramble to the bottom to wash the disciples' feet. It's because he knew who he was and whose he was and what He came to do. God gives us all kinds of promises about humility. 
The Bible says that God saves the humility. He supports the humility. He guides the humility. He gives wisdom to the humble. He rescues the humble. He exalts the humble. God loves humility. Now, if God likes humility that much, what in the world is it? Well, the Bible says that humility is something that you do. It is a way of thinking that causes you to act. It has nothing to do with your feelings, but it has everything to do with your actions, which means that it is a choice. You can choose to be humble or you can choose to be self-centered, egotistical, and arrogant. But what is humility? Well, our working definition is found in your outline. It is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of others instead of yourself and acting in their best interest instead of your own. In fewer words, I would say this. It is being other person oriented. It is being self-forgetful. This past few months, there was a family that came to visit another family that was in our small group, Auntie Anne and Uncle Mac. In fact, their picture is up there. We'd been with them, visiting with them in the group, or they'd been in our group for, I don't know, two or three weeks, and I found out that Uncle Mac, Mac Mitchell, is a Silver Star recipient. It's the third highest award, I guess you would say, for being a, a, a person of courage in, in the face of combat. He, he, he flew over 200 and, I don't know, I'm going to say 253, 283 missions in Vietnam in a helicopter. He flew in one time by himself to rescue a soldier that had been wounded at, his, at, at the peril of his own life. He flew, has flown four different presidents, really five, but one was just casual. And yet, if you were with him, I'm, you would have never guessed. I found it different, though, when I was in the small group he would always stand until all the ladies were seated. He had a life of self-forgetfulness. And to be honest with you, it was my honor just to get to know him a little bit. But humility isn't thinking less of yourself. No, it is thinking of others more than yourself. And it is putting into practice. And it is choosing to be humble by putting that into practice. And God talks about this. In 1 John 3, verse 18, it says this, let us not just talk about love, let us practice real love. Will you circle the word practice? It's like I said a few weeks ago, practice doesn't make perfect, but it does help us to make progress, and especially as we're, so to speak, climbing up the straight rock in relationships. Practice is something that you and I must do again and again and again and again. And at first, it may not seem natural, but eventually it becomes second nature. And God says when that happens, your life is going to be blessed. Your relationships are going to be blessed. And so today we're going to take a look at four practical ways that we can practice humility. And if you are sitting here and you're thinking, I don't need this one, you are the one that needs it the most. Because pride always blinds us, does it not, to ourselves. And so today, instead of four kinds of pride, I want to make this positive. Four ways to practice humility. And the first way is practice giving pre preference to others. 
Now, I want you to think about some things that you find difficult to do. For instance, like letting people go first. Let's say you are at Walmart. The, the, long is, the line is long and it is slow. There is some jerk behind you that is hitting you with the cart. And then you hear over the loud intercom system, lane number four is now open. What are you going to do? Of course, you're going to let him go first, right? And hit him with your cart. <laughs> okay, here's another one, okay? You're in the church parking lot. You're running 10 minutes behind because you got three crying kids in the back seat. You pull, in, you pull into the lot and you see one parking spot open in front of the LifePoint kids. You're thinking, go God. But at the same time, you see two other cars. What are you going to do? Hit the gas? <clears throat> Slam on the brake and flip them off? Or be a Christian and let them go first. And then after they're in the building, park behind them so they can't get out early. <laughs> Notice what Paul says here in Romans 12.10. Give preference to one another in honor. Not too long ago, I went to a concert, I guess you could call it, with uh, Linda Ronstead with the, the Dallas Symphony. And when I was there, I really enjoyed it. I know that may shock you, but I am culture, okay? I go to those kind of things. But I learned a lot of, while I was there. I learned that there was this guy that when he walked out on stage, everyone just started applauding for him. Uh, the, the conductor came up to him and, and recognized him, and everybody just applauded for him. Linda Ronstead, when she finally got on stage, she honored him, everybody applauded. When the, when the concert was over, this guy walks off and everybody applauds. And I'm thinking, what is the big deal about this guy? He's only a fiddle player, okay? What's the big deal? And then I learned that he was first chair violinist, that he was concert master. Leonard Bernstein, a famous conductor, was once asked, what is the most difficult instrument to play? And his answer was this, second fiddle. That is so true, is it not? We all want to be in the top spot. And as I was at that concert, I don't know, there was 20 plus violinists, but only one gets the spotlight. I love the, the translation, the message on this verse. It says, practice playing second fiddle. Let someone else get the spotlight. Show them preference. There's another way that we can show preference, and that is by helping other people to get ahead. About 15 years ago, when I was 25 pounds lighter, I know that's hard to imagine, but that was true. I used to run a lot of 10Ks, but I could never break the 50-minute mark. In other words, to get the mile, mile or the time down to about eight, eight minutes or less per mile. And so I asked our very own Steve Chalk, Dr. Chalk, he's a neuropsychologist. I asked him to help me, okay, because I thought it's a psychological thing. I've got to work through this. And he's good at running. I mean, he's qualified for lots of Boston marathons. And so for months, he, he and I were training together, and he was working with me, and we chose the Los Colinas Christmas Classic 10K to break the 50-minute barrier. And when we got there, of course, I got my shirt on. I'm pumped. I'm excited. And there's, I don't know, there's thousands of people. And I see this guy who looks like Bubba. You know what I'm talking about? Big bear belly. Bubba, okay. He didn't have a shirt on. 
I looked at him. I turned to Steve, being a Christian pastor that I am, right? Turned to him and says, you know what? If I looked like that, I'd be wearing a shirt, okay? I'm just, I'm just telling you, okay? Anyway, the race starts. And Steve, he's a marathon runner. He's talking constantly to me. I, I, after the first mile, make him yes or no questions, uh, Steve. I can't breathe, okay? Yes, no. And after that, after about the third mile, well, I, I couldn't breathe, okay? So anyway, we're running along, and he's encouraging me, and he's saying, George, don't let this guy pass you. Don't let you, this guy pass you. And I look over my shoulder, and it was Bubba. I learned then never to criticize someone's appearance, okay? Anyway, as we rounded the corner, we could see the finish line at 6.2-mile mark. And I thought Steve would smoke me. But he started fading, fading, and he ate my dust. Steve let me get ahead. Now, far more than getting ahead in a race is to get ahead in life, folks and to live in the very presence of God. And what enables you and I to do that? It's because of Jesus Christ's preference of you. Take a look at Philippians 2. Don't push your way to the front. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourself long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourselves the way Jesus thought of himself. He was God, but he took on the status of a slave, an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life. Think about the humility of Jesus, that he left heaven above to, came to come and dwell with humanity. He was born in a stable. When he comes in triumphantly, a few days before his crucifixion, he didn't come on a white stallion, but rather he came on a lowly, humble donkey, and he died a criminal's death. Why? So you could have an opportunity to get ahead. Jesus put our preferences ahead of his own. There is another way that you and I can show preference, and that is by doing more listening than speaking. Take a look at what James says in James 1, 19. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. We, we get that reversed a lot, don't we? I grew up in Sugar Creek, Missouri. It is a small ethnic town filled full of Germans and Poles. And it's built around, it was built around, a standard oil, a oil refinery. And a lot of trains would be coming in to this town, bringing oil that needed to be refined. And I was with my friend, Mike Smith, at that time. Not a very Polish or German name, but Mike was it. And as I was talking with him, trains would come by, and we'd have to yell at each other. And one time I just asked him, I said, does it ever bother you that, you know, these trains come by? And he says, no. When, when, when you are used to loud noises, it's easy to tune them out. And I learned something that day. That if I'm doing all the talking, if I'm the only noise in the room, it's easy for others to tune me out. You see, it takes practicing humility to truly listen to other people. It takes practicing humility to show preference to others. 
The second way that you and I can practice humility is by learning from others, by being open to suggestions and corrections and criticism. In other words, it's to be teachable. Humility, a major component of humility truly is being teachable. It is not thinking that you know it all, and it's not acting like you know it all. Take a look at Proverbs 15, verse 12. Conceited people do not like to be corrected. They never ask for advice. Now, why would anybody want to open themselves up to suggestions, corrections, or criticisms? Well, let me give you several reasons. One is this, is that you will be more likable. Remember, pride at its root is insecurity. It is acting like you know it all. And so you walk around, so to speak, arrogantly. Or you walk around with arrogance. Do you like arrogant people? Gag me royal, okay? And so humility makes you and I more likable. The second reason is that it'll make you wiser. Take a look at Proverbs 15, 32. If you reject criticism, you only harm yourself. But if you listen to correction, you grow in understanding. Humble people always are learning because they're open to correction. See, the reality is we're all ignorant in different areas, aren't we? You know things that I don't know. I know things that you don't know. But together, guess what? We can know a whole lot more things. That is why two heads are better than one. And you and I don't have the time to learn everything through personal experience. That is why we must learn from other people. Now, in order to learn from other people, one of the ways that you do that is by asking questions. Ladies, I want you to know something. This week, you're going to get in an email, if we have your email, or you can go to our website. It'll be up probably by Tuesday. A women's survey as we launch a women's ministry this fall. We got women's groups, but we're launching a women's ministry. And why are we doing that? Because I don't know. One, I'm not a woman, okay? And I don't know all that there is to know, but I believe if we put all our heads together, guess what? We can come up with a dynamic women's ministry. Humble people ask questions. Prideful people don't ask questions. Which means that you have to decide whether you want to be a, appear to be wise or whether you really want to be wise. I tell my staff all the time, leaders are learners, and they learn by observing and by asking questions. The third reason why you'd want to do this is that it produces less conflict. If you're open to correction, it produces less conflict. Take a look at Proverbs 13.10. Pride only leads to arguments. Folks, anytime there's an argument, you can bet that pride is at the root of it, okay? Now, this is our memory verse for the week. I want to encourage you to memorize it. Because my guess is because of the culture that we live in, with all the criticism, okay, and judgmentalism that exists in our culture, that you're probably going to get some this week. Understand this. Criticism is always a test of humility. Are you going to respond in defensiveness? Or are you going to respond in a humble way? I had an opportunity to learn this a number of years ago. 
Learn correction. I was at a place in my life that I was fatigued. I was physically and emotionally exhausted. I had meetings that were going day and night for weeks. I was counseling families through critical situations. I had staff hirings. I had ministry meetings that I had to go to to keep pushing or promoting and uh, directing ministries. I was writing a new series, and I came to a place that I was just exhausted. I was exhausted physically, and I was exhausted emotionally. I was exhausted mentally. I was exhausted vocationally. And on top of that, I was skimming relationally. Skimming relationally is when your schedule fills up with so much stuff that you forget about the most important relationships that you had, which meant I was forgetting about my quiet times with God. And I know you pay me to have those, okay? And you're with your spouse and with your kids and with your staff. And so I had these two things working for me. I was physically exhausted, emotionally, vocationally, mentally, and I was relationally skimming. And so what I did is I got into my office and I pulled in some of my top aides and I said, here's what's going on in my life. What do I need to change? What am I doing wrong? Because I can't keep this pace up forever. And I listened to their correction and we came up with a few things that I implemented. I went home and I told Cheryl about that meeting and I asked her, honestly, what do you see in my life? And if you know Cheryl, she is the gentle, quiet one. Opposites attract, right? And she said, honestly, George, because of your schedule, I feel lonely. And that broke my heart. I can't think of a worse thing that you could say to the most important person in your life. Your lifestyle makes me feel lonely. I was devastated. And since that time, I made changes. You see, I wonder how many lonely spouses there are in this room. I wonder how many lonely kids. I wonder how many lonely parents, grandparents there are because of our prideful desire to do more and get more and have more. And as a result, we're just skimming the surface in our relationships. Who do you need to ask, what's wrong in my life? Do you have the guts to do that? Do you have the courage to humble yourself and to say, give me your best shot? Folks, it takes courage to ask people who know you the best, what's out of whack in my life? What's out of whack with my values? When Cheryl told me that, that my lifestyle, my schedule was making her lonely, you know what? I had to make a split-second decision back then. I had to decide, am I going to open myself up to her criticism, her objective analysis of my life, or am I going to defend myself? And folks, I could have. 
I could have said, you're lonely. It's lonely at the top, baby. And from that pride would have come conflict. You see, defensiveness never gets us anywhere. God calls us to himself. And he painted the picture for us in the way of a child. He said this, whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. God wants you and I in our attitudes to be like children. Why a child? Because children are inquisitive, aren't they? Children want to learn. They are teachable. And so when criticism comes your way, you have a choice. You can either be teachable and humble or you can be unteachable and arrogant. The third way to practice humility is by admitting when I'm wrong. Now the truth of the matter is that we we all have flops, failures, and fumbles. We all have mistakes that we make in life. And by the way, we do them on a regular basis. Do we not? And we have the tendency that when we make a mistake, that we admit it to a certain degree. We, we, we don't ever admit it to the depth that is really going on in our life, okay? And, the, and, and who we really are. Rather, we like to candy coat that. Kind of reminds me of this story. This wife, mother, who is off on a business trip, calls up, okay, calls up her husband and says, honey, what's going on? And he says, well, the dog died. And she, being the kind mother that she is, well, I'm, I'm really sorry about that, but can, can I just say something? She says, yes, and he says, I wish you would have eased me into that a little bit, okay? I, I mean, uh, you could have said something like, oh, the dog got out somehow, some way. The dog got up on the roof somehow, some way. The, the dog fell off the roof. You took it to the vet. The vet tried to save it, but the dog died. The husband, being humble, said, okay, I'll, I'll do that. She moves on to the next side. Well, mom came down to help you out with the kids. How are things going? Somehow, some way, mom got out of, out of the house and is on the roof. I've been waiting all week for that one, I'm telling you. <laughs> now, I, I, I share that story to prime the pump. Ladies, guys, Father's Day is coming, and I've invited a pastor comedian on Father's Day. You don't want to miss it. This guy will cause you to laugh off your blessed assurance, okay? I've test-driven it with the staff. He rocks. Whenever Father's Day is, come, okay? Because he is... I mean, I was crying. It was just really good. But back to my point. We like to candy coat things, don't we? We do. I had a pastor call me up and wanted to know if I would recommend someone, some friend of mine that had applied for a job at his church. To, with his resume was a letter about a moral failure that had happened in his life. And I said, you know what? Because of confidentiality, I'm not going to talk about that. But if you will send me his resume and this letter that he attached to it, you know, I'll take a look at it. And, and he did. And as I looked at that letter, I thought, you know what? He has, a, he has shown a high degree of honesty and humility in that letter. I called that pastor back up and I said, here's the deal. 
I'd go for it, providing that you inform the church. A month later, he called me up and says, our church brought him on board, and, it was, and he was uh, unanimously voted in. It was a congregational church. And I thought, he got a second chance. He's back in the game. Go, God. Take a look at this verse out of Proverbs 28, 13. A man who refuses to admit his mistakes can never be successful. But if he confesses and forsakes them, he gets another chance. Now, I don't know what kind of background you come from. Maybe the home that you were raised in was one like mine, where you never heard the words, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And so you feel challenged to come clean because you think if you do that you will be looked at as less than perfect. Well, guess what? They already see your imperfections. This is an area that my wife has had to help me with, with my kids and my daughter-in-laws. I'm a AAA personality, right? I mean... I got an answer almost for everything. And it's a four points, very linear. We'll get you there, right? And so sometimes I step over the boundaries. And after times with the family, Cheryl will get in the car with me and say, George, I think you stepped over the boundary. You may want to apologize to your kids. And I do. And what I have discovered is that instead of them thinking less of me, they think more of me. Take a look at this verse. James 5.16. Make this your common practice. Will you circle that word? Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can live together whole and healed. Folks, this is the first step to healing a relationship. It is the humility to say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? When you and I choose to practice humility, God says, I am going to pour out blessings on your relationship. And for us at LifePoint, and I want to encourage you with this again, we're bringing in Dr. Les and Leslie. Parrot, happy marriage, I'm telling you. You're going to laugh. It's going to be funny. But you're going to learn to have what I call a fair fight to have a good fight night in a good way that's constructive. I don't care where you're at. We all have relationships. Come. I think it's 10 bucks, okay? Invite your friends. Pay for it because it will bring blessings into your life. The fourth way that you and I can practice humility is this, by surrendering our plans to God. You see, anytime we make plans apart from God, that's called pride. And we do that a lot, don't we? When we make our plans and then when it doesn't come off like we want them to, we get mad at God. That's called pride. And God says when you do that, in essence, you're playing God and I'm going to be opposed to you. Take a look at James 5, uh, James 4, 6 and 7. God opposes everyone who's proud, but he gives grace to everyone who is humble. So surrender to God. Will you circle the word opposed? Now, folks, I can think of a lot of people I wouldn't want to oppose me. 
in the boxing ring, I would not want uh, Anthony Joshua, who is the new heavyweight champion of the world. I would not want um, um, LeBron uh, James uh, to oppose me on the basketball court. If I was at an auction, I wouldn't want Bill Gates there, okay? If I was in an argument, I wouldn't want to be in the room with my wife. I'm just going to let you know that. But I really wouldn't want God to oppose me. Because I'm not going to win. And God says when you make your plans apart from him, he's going to oppose you. That word oppose in the Greek means he's going to stand in battle array against you. And he's going to say, surrender. I was working my way up corporate ladder. I was a Christian. And I'll never forget this conversation that I had with, now as a, kind of a rock star, Ruth, Ruth, Ruth Whitlock. And she says, George, you know, I see that God's going to, I really think that God's going to raise you up to be a pastor. And I looked at her and said, never. <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to work my way up the corporate ladder in exact words, and I'm going to bring God along with me and show him how to do it. About one month later, my car was totaled, and I couldn't get out. And my life flashed before me. God says, surrender. Surrender to my plans for your life. Now, what does that look like? Take a look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 13. Give yourselves to God and surrender your whole being to him to be used for his righteous purpose. It means that you come to God and you say, God, I want your plans, not my plans, not my dreams, not my desires. I want your plans for my life. I'm choosing them over mine. That is humility. That is surrendering your life to Jesus. And a beautiful picture of that is Mary, the mother of Jesus. She had her dream, did she not? She had her dream of this house and a nice white picket fence and everything was going to be great. They're going to have kids and live happily ever after. But God showed up one day and said, that's not my plan for your life. Though you're a virgin, you are going to be overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit and you're going to be, conceive the Savior of the world. And you know what her response was, right? Remember? So be it. I'm your servant. Whatever you want is okay by me. Folks, that's surrendering to God's plan for your life. Have you done that? Have you come to that point like Jesus, who is our forerunner, the one who has scaled the highest mountain, Golgotha, and said, God, not my will be done, but yours. Have you done that with your marriage? Have you done that with your marital status? Have you done that with your kids? You see, after that meeting with Cheryl, I spent a long time praying and thinking. And I came up with two thoughts. One was from a great theologian, and there are a lot of great theologians out there. I mean, there's Calvin, okay? There, there, there's Francis Schaeffer. There's a lot of great theologians out there. But this one came from Clint Eastwood. Dirty Harry. 
A man's got to know his limitations. You see, humility is understanding your humanity. It is knowing your strengths and it is knowing your weaknesses and it's being honest about both of them. Pride, on the other hand, is just the opposite. It is overestimating your strengths and underestimating your weaknesses. In other words, pride is based on a lie. And humility is based on a truth. And so what is the truth about you? Well, the Bible says that you are infinitely loved, that you are gifted, no ifs, ands, buts about that, but that you are also deeply flawed. And much of the stress that you and I experience in life is when we forget those things and we put ourselves on a performance trap in Collin County where we try to be it all and do it all and have it all. And that is pride. And when you and I begin to feel the stress of that lie, that's when we need to surrender. And we need to say, God, your will be done and not mine. Because you're being pushed by pride and not God's plan. You and I need to understand our limitations. We're human. But the second thought was tied in with the verse Matthew eleven twenty nine, that says, take up my yoke upon you and learn from me. It's the only time Jesus described himself. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In essence, he is saying, as you learn to be humble, knowing your limitations, and by choosing God's plan for your life, your stress will begin to be reduced. And so as you think about it, Humility and a stressless life go together. And why is that? It's because Jesus said, you're taking on my yoke. The implication means that you're connected to God. And the implication means that you're going in the same direction and you're going at the same pace that he would go at. Folks, when you and I get connected to God, and we go the same direction at the same cadence of God's Holy Spirit that resides within us, then our stress begins to reduce. Now, my guess is this, that some of you here this morning would say, you know what, my yoke really isn't that easy. My yoke is really hard, and I am exhausted physically, emotionally, vocationally, mentally, and I am skimming relationally. I would suggest that you pray the prayer of the psalmist in Psalms 119.37. God, turn me away from wanting any other plan than yours. You see, humility is surrendering your life to God's plan. And Jesus led the way. He went straight up Golgotha. And he says, I'm going to be the breakthrough you. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, that entered into our human world and helped us to, to see, to model 
what it really means to love. To love everybody, you, and everyone in our relational world. And to love always. God, this evening, this morning, would you help us to make your plans our plans? I don't know where you're at today, but maybe as you look at your relational world, you see yourself falling apart and you see every significant relationship you have falling apart. Maybe what you need to do is that you need to surrender to God and live for His purposes. And that starts by inviting Christ, the breakthrough artist, into your life, dropping Him from your head to your heart. Truly becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. Not one by name, but through practice. Will you just say, if you haven't done that, just say, God, I admit. My world, myself, has fallen apart, but I believe that you died on the cross for me. And so right now, God, I invite you in. Begin working in me and begin working Thank you for the forgiveness that I have through your son, Jesus Christ. Help me to practice what I know to be true of you. And if you prayed that prayer, as simple as it was, God heard you. He hears the quiet prayers that go on on in our hearts and in our minds. But would you take a step of faith this morning and just let me know. Take the communion card that's in front of you. Give me maybe your name, your email address, and on the back just check the appropriate box. And I'll email you and mail you some literature that'll help you understand what we just did. Well, Lord, you're a good God. We can say that our lines have fallen in pleasant places. That we have blessings beyond our mind to acknowledge and to, to, to see but you're a good God and you continue to to speak into our life helping us to become all that you want us to be and so God this week as we go out into the world would you through your spirit just remind us to love everybody and to love always we give you this in Jesus name